you're listening to a podcast from the University of Manchester. Well, what a time it's been. So all the staff and students at the university were sent home just a few days before the lockdown was announced in the UK. But I don't think any of us can be accused of taking it easy. In fact, many of our colleagues, researchers, students and alumni have been right at the heart of the battle against COVID-19. They've been helping frontline workers through both making and sourcing personal protective equipment, volunteering to help out with other tasks. They've been advising the government and modelling the pandemic in order to make informed decisions about the future. They've been keeping our energy networks running throughout the crisis so we don't have to worry about losing power on top of everything else. And they've been developing tests to identify COVID-19. So one fairly major project has been the mathematical modelling and monitoring of the virus spread. Dr Ian Hall is basically becoming one of the most read names in the papers right now. He's all over the place and he's been working on a new app that crunches the numbers from data submitted by users to build up an accurate heat map that shows where in the UK most people have reported symptoms of coronavirus and whether people are following social distancing guidelines. But that's not all because Dr Hall, along with Dr Thomas House and Dr Lorenzo Pellis and a team of PhDs and research assistants are also looking back to historic pandemics like the bubonic plague for clues on infection patterns. So armed with this information and their own combined knowledge of healthcare and epidemiology, they're creating realistic models that can help predict how the COVID-19 situation will progress in the UK. This advice is then passed on to the UK Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on modelling, and they then report it to the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, or SAGE. We'll be speaking to some of the researchers involved in this project a little bit later. And, take a breath, if all that wasn't enough, researchers at the Manchester Institute of Biotechnology have been working on a test for COVID-19 that you can use at home. And best of all, it gives you a result in just 20 minutes. So it works using lateral flow, which to you and me means you wee on it, just like with a home pregnancy test. Then you wait and then you get your result at home so you don't have to send it off to a lab and then wait so this could make a real difference for frontline workers who need to know if they have COVID-19 before they visit hospitals or go into care homes to treat people but that's not all um and thankfully I'm sure everyone will be pleased to know I'm going to throw throw the baton over to you Joe, because you've been finding out about how the university is helping to boost the UK supply of PPE I have, yes. So there's been lots going on across the Faculty of Science and Engineering to both make and source uh, PPE. Uh, and what I think is great as well is that we've got academics, students and alumni all helping out. So I just thought I'd give some examples of what's going on across the faculty. Um, so on the academic side of things, one great example is, and I, I hope I pronounced this right, is Dr. Obux Ijewomu, who is the Director of Commercial Project Management in FSC and is also a lecturer in project management in the Department of Mechanical Aerospace and Civil Engineering, or MACE as we like to call it. So he has helped Manchester City Council to coordinate and test around 150,000 pieces of PPE so that it, they can be delivered to key workers around Manchester. Um, so the council had received thousands of pieces of PPE from companies and from 
donations from people. But before the equipment could be distributed, it needed to be checked to make sure it was both suitable and safe to use. So Dr. Ijiwomu has led a team of experts from, as well as the University of Manchester, people at the universities of Coventry and Brighton, uh, and has been able to organise video conferences, emails, physical testing, and a wrap-up video conference, all in under eight days. Uh, They even worked over the Easter Bank holiday weekend to make it happen. Another good example is that the university has been working alongside other universities, including Salford and Manmet in Manchester, uh, and they've been using 3D printing in order to repurpose specialised equipment to produce safety equipment for NHS workers, helping to reduce the demand across the city and the northwest. So they've been designing and making headbands for protective face masks. Professor Brian Darby of the Department of Materials has been coordinating our response and he's been working alongside a team of experimental officers and various technical staff who have volunteered to help with the demand. They've been using around 50 printers across the university and it's thought that around 500 additional mask headbands can be produced per week. The face shield that is used is being laser cut by commercial suppliers and assembled at Salford Royal. Now on the student side of things, a great example is Olivia Faye Dickinson, who is a third year materials science and engineering with textile technology MN student in the Department of Materials. Uh, And she's returned home to her summer job back in Litchfield, where she works as a seamstress at an alteration shop. So she's been volunteering to sew scrubs for NHS staff in her local area, putting her skills to good use alongside a group of seamstresses and cutters. And they've been donating their scrubs to a number of local hospitals. So we've also got alumni playing a big part and One great example is Tom McPherson-Pope, who is a computer science graduate. Uh, Now we're going to hear more from Tom in his interview in this podcast a bit later. But he's been 3D printing visors for NHS staff working on the front line. As you'll hear, Tom is a very enterprising graduate and has done loads of things since leaving the university, not least this work in helping the NHS. Yeah, um, we're going to be speaking to Tom later, along with a few of the people involved in the mathematical modelling project and also um, someone else who has managed to resurrect several ventilators in one of Manchester's major hospitals. So we hope that you'll enjoy this podcast roundup of some of the efforts of the University of Manchester's colleagues. And first of all, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Lorenzo Pellis, who, together with Dr. Ian Hall and Dr. Thomas House, has been crunching the numbers and using his expertise in mathematical monitoring to advise the government on its coronavirus strategy. Dr. Pellis discussed the huge task with my colleague Dave. In the moment of, of emergency, which, is, which was uh, towards the middle of March, then we we in, in the in our manchester group we brought, we brought a really essential contribution in the early discussions that then resulted in the lockdown um this is this is work that um that has been done between us in manchester but with also uh, a colleague of mine uh, in canada uh, in the uh, in york university um she's called francesca scarabelle and then there are other colleagues in oxford and uh, uh, together we kind of um realize that the that the epidemic is spreading faster than um than in than initial estimates from china would suggest and uh, it's unclear whether there are these differences it could be uh due to a, r- a range of factors 
but but based on those estimates, there was this initial kind of uh, initial initial idea, maybe, or initial um, views that things could be uh, managed with uh, maybe some aggressive forms of social distancing, but still um, uh, it, it could be manageable without creating massive disruption to society. Uh, but then, then the infection moved to Europe, and we noticed that the numbers were growing fast in Italy and France. Uh, and the problem is that those numbers that you could see growing are numbers of confirmed cases, and confirmed cases are a data stream that is incredibly difficult to rely on because um, it depends on the delay for the test result to come back. It depends on how quickly you are testing. So um, even if numbers are growing in any of these data streams, it, it, it could be due to other ad hoc explanations, to sampling biases, to an aggressive testing policy. So um, it, 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 the fact that these numbers are growing doesn't necessarily mean that the epidemic is spreading particularly fast. It could be just that you are swabbing really fast. Um, then the fact that the deaths uh, you see are growing also pretty fast might be due to the fact that um, there is a selection bias towards uh, cases that maybe are more frail, particularly immunocompromised people um, or, or older people that are more severely affected might die faster than 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 average, and therefore this might result this might result in the the number of deaths growing faster than than what you would naturally expect. Um, but but then we we kind of we kind of realized pretty quickly that there were um, that numbers were growing fast in in multiple data streams at the same time, in multiple countries at the same time, and for extended periods of time there were harder to explain from a, um, with, with ad hoc explanations on, on the sampling biases and other possible caveats that you could put on the data streams. Uh, and so that, that became evidence, uh, quite strong evidence that things are, uh, that th this, this infection is just, is just really contagious. And, uh, and, and these kind of work fed into a, um, into, into a um, policy of lockdown because um, if things could uh, potentially be managed at the beginning, then once once we realize that, that the infection is just is just spreading too fast, it, 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 the the risk of uh, overwhelming the healthcare system is just so high that you you are left with with very little choice. And we are very aware that that um, that the lockdown is costly both socially and economically. And uh, and obviously in in the time of emergency, it's very difficult to quantify any of these costs. Uh, even now, I would I would claim that. The economic costs of, of a lockdown is just very difficult to, to, to calculate. So, um, but at the, in the moment of emergency, you, you the, the idea is to is that avoiding overrunning the the NHS uh, is is the is the most helpful goal you can achieve at the moment, and uh, and the NHS coped incredibly well in kind of um, increasing capacity to to account for that. Um, so that was that was basically the, this this. Um, uh, analysis that show that things are just growing uh, too fast to be able to manage with other conventional measures is uh, was was one of our, um, one of the important contributions we brought at the beginning. To listen to that episode in full, head to the Buzz's blog page. We'll provide the link at the end of this episode. 
Doctors Pellis, Hall and House have not been alone in their mammoth mathematical task. They've been receiving help from some of the university's researchers and PhD students. I spoke to Bindu Vicaria and Jacob Curran-Sebastian about the role they're playing in this vital work. But first, I asked them to tell me about their own journeys through higher education. So, Bindu, first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so, I'm a third-year PhD student. Um, I work across two departments mainly, so the Department of Mathematics and Health Sciences. Um, so, my research is about... Uh, modelling um, and improving the accuracy of clinical prediction models. Uh, so these are tools that we use to uh, basically predict the probability of something happening, an event of interest happening to an individual. So this could be a heart attack or, you know, them developing some sort of a disease in the future. And, and Jacob? Hi, so yeah, I'm Jacob. I'm a second year PhD student in the Department of Maths. And my main PhD is looking at the mathematical modelling of antibiotic resistance. And did you both study for your degrees at the University of Manchester? Uh, yes. So I did the four-year uh, MMath degree. Yep, I've been here for, for four years. So I did the um, BSc in the MMath uh, at the University of Manchester and stayed on. Still loving it. <laughs> How cool. Um, have you enjoyed your time here? Yeah, it's been it's been really good. It's a really it's a really lovely department, and in particular, the epidemiology group that I'm in now is a really lovely group. So I'm very happy to still be here. Four four years of maths and still loving maths. That's incredible. That's great. At, at this stage, it's more seven years. Of, oh, <laughs> seven years of maths. Wow. <laughs> Who could have thought though that partway through your PhD, suddenly the whole world would change seemingly overnight as a result of the coronavirus. Um, how how has that change affected your work and your routine? Um, so I think, if anything, I'm a lot busier. And I think everyone that's in epidemiology will say the exact same. Um, in terms of my work and routine, I'm working most days in the hospital, which is where I am currently. Um, and it's kind of my main PhD project has taken something of a backseat to work on on COVID. So, yeah, it's yeah, definitely a busy time. But un unlike a lot of the rest of us, you haven't just been watching Netflix and eating out-of-date Easter eggs. You've actually been working on the front lines, mapping um, the possible projections of this illness. That's right, isn't it? Yes, well, I'm certainly behind on Netflix, but... Um... Uh, yes. <laughs> so uh, the work that I'm doing in particular uh, is based in the Manchester Foundation Trust uh, hospitals. And we are looking at estimating lengths of stay for patients that come into the hospital, COVID patients. Um, so what that means is we want to know how long are people staying in hospital for and how long are they particular staying in an intensive care unit for. Um, and this is something that's really useful for planners because... They want to know how many people are going to be coming in, how long are they going to be here for, um, and that helps them to know how many how many beds they are going to need each day and what their capacity is. So I think it's something that's really useful for planning. Um, Bindu, can you tell us a little bit about the project that you've been working on at the moment? Yes. Um, so the the main thing that we've been looking at is um, length of stay periods within the hospital, like the hospital, and. 
because there are many hospitalisation pathways that an individual can take when you know they present with symptoms of COVID, and we don't quite understand how this. Well, what we're trying to do is uh, understand how this impacts uh, resources within hospitals, um, and one of the ways to do that is to look at bed occupancy, and. We do that by trying to figure out like length of stay of these different individuals uh, who have these different pathways um, to try and give a better understanding and to provide the hospital with a way of planning uh, strategically for, you know, maybe looking a week or two into the future, what they should expect uh, in terms of cases, in terms of patients moving throughout the hospital, etc., and are you seeing that information make a difference in the way that um, patients are admitted to and then travel through the hospital process? Uh, we've been told that it's it's helped from a planning perspective um, and how, you know, the hospital is sort of like allocating resources, etc. Um, because, you know, they, they usually do this uh, just by clinicians eyeballing numbers, which is a fantastic way to do it because they understand, you know, the dynamics of a hospital, but we're just, you know, hoping to make it slightly more data-driven um, and add some robustness to, to the way that things are usually done at the hospital. So not just helping hospitals as they battle a pandemic, but hopefully benefiting them in the long term too. It's pretty incredible to imagine your PhD taking you to the front line of a global pandemic. You can listen to that interview in full on the blog. Another Manchester colleague who's made a difference at the city's hospitals is Dr Andrew Waitman of the Department of Mechanical, Aerospace and Civil Engineering. I caught up with him to find out more. I guess the challenge that was faced was focused on uh, non-invasive ventilation machines, which are used in the hospital. Um, and these devices uh, deliver pressurised oxygen at high flow rates via a face mask and support patients who might otherwise need to be sedated and, and placed onto invasive ventilators, um, which are often kind of referred to as, as life support machines. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. The non-invasive ventilators, they use uh, oxygen uh, pressures and flows that are designed to have a controlled leak out of the vented face masks. Um, but in this current crisis, this kind of creates two problems. The first is that it consumes a large volume of oxygen, so about 60 to 80 litres per minute. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is a concern as kind of hospital, uh, you know, in hospitals, oxygen supplies are limited. Um, and secondly, the high flow rates mean the treatment rooms are quickly filled um, w- with the airborne virus potentially because it's an airborne virus and you're passing oxygen over people. Um, so this would mean that the, that the rooms would need to be sealed off. Uh, this would require lots of small rooms and this would be very resource intensive in terms of nursing staff to support them and, and, and uh, you know, exposure risks for um, staff. Yes, so a ventilator that leaks out COVID-19 infected air, I guess, is the absolute last thing you want anywhere, least of all the hospital. Yeah, so the mask, the way the masks are designed with the holes in, so that would pass air over people's um, um, skin. And obviously that would then aerosolize the, the, the virus into the uh, the, the uh, air, which would be a, a problem for people, really, a, a challenge. So, so the solution, kind of what we were looking to do was to um, kind of 
rapidly design and implement a solution um, to this problem. Uh, and we came up with a, a bespoke adapter to fit the bottom of the face masks, um, which we, we uh, generated using 3D printing. Um, and this could kind of convert potentially uh, uh, life-saving systems for, for use with the sickest patients during the, the pandemic. Dr. Wakeman came up with a particularly valuable solution there, I'm sure you'll agree. Another area where 3D printing has come to the rescue during the pandemic is in the creation of personal protective equipment. I spoke to computer science alumnus Thomas McPherson Pope about his mission to create more PPE for frontline workers. Yeah, so I've been, um, I've been 3D printing and uh, laser cutting visors um, to, to help with the, the PPE situation um, for healthcare workers. Um, so I've got about five 3D printers, um, a couple of them from the lab, a couple that I already owned and I've uh, built another one um, since since lockdown. And um, every so often I managed to get into the lab um, and, and laser cut the, the, the plastic sheeting needed for the visor, um, which is quite a quick process. And then then it's just weeks and weeks of, uh, of 3D printing to, to make the, um, the frame that holds uh, those plastic sheets together. How how many of these um, pieces of headgear have you been able to produce so far? Yeah, so I've um, I've made about 150 so far um, in terms of sort of total kits. So the way I'm producing them is putting them in a Ziploc bag, sort of disassembled, um, so that people can can assemble them, and make sure that it's in a in a clean environment. So I've been assembling them with uh, masks and and gloves and such. Um, so I think in terms of yeah complete kits it's uh, 150 and then maybe um, another 50 of, of various parts to uh, to then finish off. And these have all been going straight to frontline workers who are who are looking after people with coronavirus. Yeah, it's been um, it's been quite interesting in terms of um, the distribution of things. So some people have contacted me directly, um, you know, ambulance workers, GPs. Um, but also people working in hospitals, um, you know, on, on coronavirus wards, um, and people trying to to help in the distribution. So um, when this started, I sort of felt helpless because I I obviously can't help anyone um, in terms of a medical side of things. Um, but luckily, found that I could three D print. But I think everyone else has been sort of looking at how can how can they help as well. So um, there's been help people helping in in all. Um, areas of the the project. While Thomas had a helping hand with his PPE efforts, across the faculty, colleagues have been collaborating to make and collect PPE for frontline NHS workers. My colleague Dave spoke to Ubux Ishirumu about his role assisting Manchester City Council to coordinate and test thousands of pieces of PPE so that they could be delivered to key workers in the city. I, I aligned with um, one M.F. Um, Weiner who wrote an article in the Journal of Medical Economics entitled, Don't Waste a Crisis, Your Patients or Your Own. You know, so in other words, when the crisis kicked in and I reflect and have conversation with colleagues, one of the things that 
kept coming to mind was that um, this is a time um, when researchers who are what they are sought will be struggling to make contributions to the pandemic and the crisis that is unfolding, which is a very fast moving um, event. So I had that uh, in my mind and, and it was, it was um, running. Um, so when the opportunity came, uh, I received an email from Manchester City Council suggesting that they had a, a problem that required um, help with. Uh, it, it immediately struck me that here is an opportunity to really to, to make the most of the crisis itself. Uh, and, and the email from the council read that uh, they had received, um, taken delivery of different batches of PPEs. And this particular batch um, um, had come from different, four different sources and they were not certified. In other words, there was no evidence that they have been professionally certified for immediate use in the front line. And they were wondering um, what to do next um, because it was a case of um, either they dispatched the PPEs as they had uh, received them or they withheld it and lived with the, um, with the conscience of um, denying frontline workers the PPEs that they could have used um, to protect themselves and, and, and keep them. Um, the vulnerables um, um, safe. So faced with that challenge, uh, I think they reached out to me and said, um, "If I could help um, uh, with this problem." So it was, it was quite interesting that everybody responded very positively, and uh, I tried to ensure that um, the stakeholders understood the expectations of of the project, the challenges itself, and what was feasible and what was infeasible. And uh, in in the end. Uh, we were able to gain uh, uh, access to two laboratories and uh, one in Manchester and one in, uh, uh, in Brighton. Uh, but because of the time um, duration, we went ahead with the Brighton um, laboratory who uh, helped to put some of the tests together and collectively we analyzed the, the reports and um, it, it was quite um, uh, interesting to see the results that came out. In other words, the test involved having a control experiment. By control, I mean there was a certified uh, mask that served as a control experiment and the other um, four sets of masks, which came from four different batches, uh, were now the the experiment itself. So when we compared the, the um, pressure tests and other tests that we did on on both samples, it was quite clear that um, the, the uncertified masks uh, would have posed um, 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 serious health risk to frontline front workers. So it was quite interesting that based on that um, insight, the council uh, were able to take a decision on the, on the, the problem that they had at hand.
We really couldn't be prouder to be part of the amazing community that is the Faculty of Science and Engineering at the University of Manchester. That's all for this episode of The Buzz, but we'll be back soon with a brand new episode. For further information on what you've heard today, visit our website at manchester.ac.uk forward slash the buzz, where you'll also find links to the full versions of all the interviews we've featured today. If you have any questions about this episode, our email is fsemarketing at manchester.ac.uk. You can follow the faculty on Instagram and Twitter at uomsyeng and search for our Facebook page and YouTube account. See you next time.